Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. We're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. We are going to talk about George Harrison's All Things Must Pass today. Uh, we've already spoken about John Lennon and Yoko and his Plastic Ono bands and McCartney's McCartney, both 50-year-old albums. And today, we're going to look at George's, not necessarily his debut solo album, if you're being pedantic, but the one that we kind of see as the debut solo album. And here's a redundant question. Do you like All Things Must Pass, Stephen? Nah, it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, it'll do. I've been I've been waiting for three series to get this episode over the line. And you know, when you think of um, you know, big triple albums and you know seventies excess, I think it's uh, suitable that we approach all things must pass by means of a triple uh, nothing is real episode approach. It seems kind of sensible, doesn't it? Yes. So, you know, you're getting your, you know, your, your patience is being rewarded, Stephen. So uh, we, uh, we're, <laughs> we're looking at doing a triple All Things Must Pass. And um, today, a little bit like our anthology episode, we're going to look at the road to All Things Must Pass and, and, and how George eventually ended up recording, you know, his, his debut solo albums, but also the, the, the experimental solo albums he, he made along the way. And, um, you know, everybody loves All Things Must Pass. I know we're joking, but, you know, it, 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 is it the best Beatles solo album? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, thank you for thank you for listening to <laughs> Nothing Is Real. One thing I would say about All Things Must Pass is um, it, 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 it you don't have to like the Beatles to like All Things Must Pass. That's a very good point. And that is a good point. <laughs> you seem surprised, and it is probably you know for people because apparently there's these people in the world who say things like I don't like the Beatles. I just don't like the Beatles. I never connected with them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think all things must pass. You don't have to know anything about the Beatles. You do, it, it really is a, a disconnected thing. You can just hand it off to somebody and say just 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 listen to this. I think so. I think that's I think that's absolutely a fair comment. Um, what I like about this is really George seems to be putting deliberately trying to be putting as much distance between himself and the Beatles as possible. And certainly of all of the sort of solo albums that are coming out in 1970, 1971, this I think is the one that sounds least like the Beatles. It's it, it doesn't where those influences um, mm. on the surface at least well they're all kind of trying to put some clear water between themselves and the Beatles if you take John Paul and George's albums 
and they're they're doing it in probably in ways that you wouldn't expect like paul is trying to you know totally reverse his abbey road production style and john is trying to cut around the things he said before to talk about himself and then george is going for a much more collaborative meditative type approach yes um and i think you see this you see this early in his career um you know then particularly as you, as you get into the latter half of the 60s and with the creation of apple and apple is very much um john and paul's baby if you like uh, and George can be quite dismissive um, about Apple, but actually of of all four of them, he is the one that was probably the most hands-on for the longest time. Mm. Um, and he does seem to thrive in that sort of collaborative environment. And we, we sort of see this in, uh, we're looking at the, the sort of uh, really his Wonderwall and the, those early albums and up into to All Things Must Pass. And you can see the beginnings of that collaborative approach that, mm. that really informs a lot of his solo career. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about George's collaborations as, as we go through this. So let's rewind back a little bit and let's just spend a few minutes thinking about, you know, George's role as a songwriter within the Beatles and, and kind of finding his own creative voice. And uh, I always like George's explanation about how he came to be a songwriter, which was, well, you know, John and Paul were doing it. Like it, it, he, to him, it just was like, well, these were, this is what my mates are doing. Why can't I do it? Yes, I mean he he talks about uh, the, that first song "Don't Bother Me" that crops up on uh, with the Beatles as being he an exercise to see if he could actually write a song. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know you're in a band, you're you're in a band with arguably the greatest songwriting team, uh, pop uh, music songwriting team of the 20th century. Uh, what are you going to do? Have a have a crack at it yourself <laughs> and see if you can compete with them and I mean I think the fact that he is competing with them yeah. or has to compete with them is is hugely important in looking at his uh, his his output and it, yeah the competition angle is interesting because you know if you look at the John and Paul axis and the Ringo George axis yeah. Ringo seems to be we kind of said before he seems to be like the Beatles fan within the Beatles and yeah. is kind of admirably you know, applying himself to whatever songs are, are rocking up. And I, I don't, I can't think off the top of my head of any sort of George quote that says, man, I, you know, they were really two great songwriters, John and Paul. <laughs> the, 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 he doesn't rock, he doesn't sort of say things like that or give a nod <laughs> to those kind of things. He sort of thinks, well, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm yes. just as worthy. I think I think the issue, we touched on this on in an early episode, which is this idea that, Paul and John sort of carved up the songwriting mm. uh, early on. So they actually, you know, Mark Lewis talks about this in, 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 his, in the book, um, that they, they literally sat down and decided, well, you and I will put our names on these songs and regardless of whether you write it or I write it or how, how it's apportioned, should we cut George in? And they decided between themselves, no. Mm. So, so the, the, there was a decision taken early on um, and I mean, I think George looked at that more in the early days from the point of view of the financial impact of that. Uh, you know, he was very conscious of the fact that suddenly he, John and Paul were the sort of wealthiest uh, that they, they were earning. Uh, he and Ringo weren't. Mm. 
So although he talks about, you know, I just wrote this song, don't bother me as an exercise, you've got to think he he, he would have been very conscious of the money that was rolling in uh, yeah. onto the Lennon-McCartney banner. Um, and there is precedent because, you know, the, 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 the thing we haven't mentioned is in spite of all the danger, which eventually yes. appeared on Anthology 1, which is accredited as a McCartney-Harrison co-write, co-write. but it's yeah. not really a co-write. No, I mean, Paul is very clear that he wrote the song. George came up with the uh, guitar solo and and Paul gave him the credit because, as he said, that's how we thought it worked at the time. Uh, Paul cottoned you know, that, on pretty fast. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it, you know, it suddenly realized what you know. The, and there is are these stories about Epstein and George Martin and Dick James sort of explaining to them that you know how publishing worked and how this how royalties worked. And you know, there's these very sort of charming comments that either Paul or John make about you know we thought songs just we didn't realize people could own songs that yeah. they were just in the air they they just existed but yeah he cottoned on i think they both cottoned on pretty quick and in spite of all the danger still in paul's most recent set lists his most recent live set lists yes which is really um so uh, the last time i saw him uh, was uh, september or december uh, 2018 in liverpool and he sings in spite of all the danger and you think that's still a crowd sing-along, you know, from the yes. start, he was delivering those kind of songs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and it was interesting uh, to hear the crowd did sort of sing along, yeah. you know, I mean, it was a song that everyone knew. Um, so it's a song that since anthology uh, is, is sort of in the, in, in the, if not the public consciousness, at least his his audience yeah. consciousness. So we digress a little bit. So don't bother me on with the Beatles is the first George um, written song. And I, I suppose, you know, if you're Brian Epstein or Dick James, you know, and, you know, John and Paul are, you know, making coin and doing well, sure, yep. why not see what George is capable of doing and, 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 uh, and, and see what he delivers. And Don't Bother Me is kind of, uh, it, you certainly get a mark of George from this very first song of, of what his, what his inner workings might be like. I think so. I think that's one of one of the most fascinating things about his career as a songwriter is that it's there right from the beginning. And it's not that, there with John and Paul. You don't have a sense of what John and Paul's internal monologue is about necessarily no. from their songwriting at that stage. But in 63 from George, you do. You do. Uh, you know, John and Paul are right, are, are sitting down that eyeball to eyeball uh, exercise and they're writing songs. Well, now this one we'll write in the third person. This will be a thank you to the fans. This yeah. will be, we'll build on the harmonica riff from the previous hit single. So there, there's, a, there's a, maybe, you know, a calculation is maybe the wrong word, but there's a craft there and they're, 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 they're sort of looking at the market. You do get a sense don't bother me is just George saying, you know, go away. Don't bother me. Yeah. And it, it's, 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 he, he is invested in that song. Mm. Um, you know, supposedly he was ill uh, with a cold or the flu in a hotel room. So, I mean, that maybe informs <laughs> the, 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 the content, but it, it, you do absolutely get a sense of his personality and that is pretty consistent all the way through and his use of slightly odd, slightly sour sounding mm. uh, arrangements and melodies and it's all there right from the beginning 
Um, and so two more albums pass before he doesn't get more songs uh, onto a Beatles album until Help in 1965. But then another anthology track, You Know What To Do, kind of is recorded in 64. That's a bit of a slight kind of song. It's a, I, I mean, I, I can understand. I, I think it always strikes me that it sounds like a Ruttles outtake. <laughs> yes, it does. It's, it, you know. Um, but, but it's yes, there, I, and he is trying to it, get he, to he a is, point. He is, he is trying, and... Um, it's obviously Revolver is is Rubber Soul and Revolver, which George all sort of famously said in anthology. You know, it was all just one album. Which <laughs> yeah. which came first? Can't really distinguish between the two. But that's that's really for me where the songwriting starts to dramatically uh, mature. Yeah, um, and I think so. You know, you look at Revolver, and you know he gets the prime album opening track there, Taxman. Interestingly, Paul's doing the solo there and isn't yep. looking for a, a songwriter credit. But yes, um, yes. <laughs> but he gets, you know, he, he, he obviously gets three songs on Revolver, which is a lot for George. Um, and and then there's there's kind of a shift in '67. He's he's recording songs that aren't getting put out. Essentially, he's getting songs kind of put to one side, and he's not really playing the guitar. And he's getting into the sitar, and these the the spiritual langless is coming up. So he's you know, he is having a quiet revolution uh, as we get from sixty six to sixty eight. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. He's 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 writing songs. You know, only a northern song. It's all too much, which I would kind of rate as probably one of their best psychedelic yeah. um, uh, efforts. But these these are sort of being relegated to uh, you know the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. So they're they're sort of really being. Uh, you know, pushed pushed out of of contention for singles and albums. Yeah, um, like there's the four inner... George songs recorded in '67. Two of them get bumped out of '67. Yeah, uh, and for a guy who's not getting much on to say, hey, fifty percent of what you've recorded is going onto the subs bench. Yeah. Is, uh it must start to rankle a little bit. Uh, I yes, I mean, I think so. And you, you see a you you do see a change in in '68. With, with with the songs that he's writing, and that's the start, I think, of of the this sort of f- next phase of his songwriting, where which will ultimately lead to all things must pass. Yeah, you get a sense of what he is solo, and uh, so at the start of '68, he's th- this kind of leads us nicely into essentially the first. George solo album, which is Wonderwall. So at the start of 68, he's in India recording backing tracks for the Wonderwall soundtrack. And one of those tracks becomes his first Beatles B-side, The Inner Light. Yeah. Uh, And The Inner Light, everybody loves The Inner Light. Um, But The Inner Light is a leftover piece of music from the Wonderwall soundtrack. And that's essentially George's first solo album. And the Wonderwall soundtrack is quite good. I, I I do like this. I mean, yeah. it's it's uh, it is a soundtrack proper. Uh, it's short, a lot of short uh, instrumental pieces. Um, it's probably the first time that he is really marrying east and west. You know, on the Beatles tracks uh, on Revolver, he's sort of embellishing uh, Western pop songs with with the sitar or Indian. Uh, arrangements within you without you is a wholesale sort of indian exercise but this is the this is his his first attempt to sort of marry the two um i actually think it's very listenable uh yeah. it, it 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 
I, you know, I can't recommend the film particularly. It's very much. Uh, I have of not its seen time. the film. It, 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 it's odd how there's a whole tranche of films that we only talk about. I know we mentioned this in the Ringo episode a little bit, but we only talk about them because the Beatles did a soundtrack, or Mick Jagger yeah. appears in them, or Pink Floyd are somehow involved. There's, there's <laughs> a kind of there's about twenty films that would have disappeared into the yeah. blue night sky if there hadn't been some kind of hairy hippie in the background <laughs> playing some foreign instrument. Yeah, um, I, 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 yeah so I, I've never I, seen I, Wonderwall. I think that's right. I did buy it on DVD and I, I did, I think I did make it to the end, but it is very dated. I mean, you, you, you could, you, you could sort of carbon date it just yeah. by, by the style of the cinematography. And it's really quite uh, suspect in terms of its uh, uh, gender politics, shall we oh, say. Right. Um, now, it's interesting to put it up against Paul's The Family Way, because Paul had done The Family Way in 66 as a, as a soundtrack project, but that's very slight. That's really George Martin in disguise. And yes. Paul's name is plastered all over the front. It's, it's, it's not yeah. really, uh, you know, no, I think it's not, it's, Wonderwall it, is actually George rolling up his sleeves and making proper music. Yes, I mean, you, you know, I think I think for the, the family way, Paul came up with a, a, a little sequence of melody, and yeah. uh, George George Martin just embellished that and turned it into a soundtrack. But you know, the McCartney name sells. Um, but here, George actually sits down, watches the film with a stopwatch, and then goes in and says, "Right, we need a piece of music that lasts for two minutes and ten and a half seconds." So then he he comes up with that. Um, and again, he's collaborating. So he's got Clapton, he's got Peter Tork, he's got the Remo Four, he's got the Indian musicians he's working with him in Bombay. And another person that's on this album is a guy called John Barham. Yeah, now John Barham is someone who he starts working with and it, basically he keeps him in his Rolodex more or less. So this is an yeah. important kind of relationship. This is a very important relationship. John Barham was a, a classical musician who was really at that stage a student of Ravi Shankar. Um and what Barham did was take George's idea, ideas, musical ideas, and, and, and notate them so that he could then present these to the Indian musicians. But Barham will, will sort of drift around in the Beatles' orbit for a while, but he has a lifelong friendship uh, that starts at this point with George. So he will be doing orchestrations on All Things Must Pass, living in the material world. Uh, he is the man responsible for the choral arrangements on... Um, Long and Winding Road and Across the Universe. But oh, yes. Perhaps we'll, we'll forget him that. Yeah. Uh, for, for those. But he's working with George up until the end of his career. He's on Chance of India. and uh, Yes, uh, yes. So right, right up until 1997, Chance of India, he's, he's, he's there as well. So Wonderwall overlaps with the Beatles because on the reissued Wonderwall um, CD a few years ago, we got the demo backing track of The Inner Light or an alternate take of The Inner Light. Yes. And um, it's it's what's more fascinating is the little snippets of dialogue. And you hear some of it on the pepper box as well, where George is interacting with the musicians, uh, trying to get across what he, what he wants to get across. And you do sometimes have to think, goodness me, because, you know, the Inner Light soundtrack was recorded in part in, in Bombay. Um, you know, here's this guy who four years ago is from Liverpool singing Don't Bother Me. And yeah. now he's, it's, nine, it's January 68, he's in Bombay, he's talking to some instruments, he's, you know, trying to explain the point of what he's doing and getting his point across and... It's crazy. Working. I mean, it's absolutely crazy that, 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 you, that you could go from 
Liverpool to Bombay in that space of time. And as you say, he's working with with sort of classical uh, Indian musicians, and albeit he's got John Barham as a sort of musical interpreter, but he's he's collaborated. It is very much a collaboration. Yeah. And I say that it seems to me this is the first solo album by a Beatle. It's the first album that comes out on the Apple label. And it really informs, it really sets out a sort of a template for this collaborative approach that we, we mentioned earlier that, that sort of informs his whole, his whole career. You know, if he needs to get a guitar player, well, he'll pick up the phone and ring uh, Eric Clapton. If Peter Torque happens to be passing by, he'll get him involved. So um, he's very open. And all the way through, you know, you, you get this sense, uh, particularly late 60s, early 70s, and then again in the mid 80s, George is just someone that likes being in a band, doesn't necessarily yeah. like, like being in the Beatles, particularly uh, by 1970, but he likes the sort of comradeship or the camaraderie of a band setup. Um, so Wonderwall comes out, and this is, you know, this leads into the White Album period. Um, we should probably also mention Electronic Sound, which comes out in 69, which is yes. George's second open, inverted commas, solo album, close inverted commas, which yeah. he, he moves from the Apple label to the Zapple label. And I don't know have I listened. I certainly haven't listened to Electronic Sound twice. <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> and it's... it's uh, I mean, it's it's it. I guess it's setting itself up by putting itself out on this experimental Zapple label that this is not tunes. Yes, I mean, this is this is really the point of the Zapple label, and 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 there's a you know an entire episode to be done on the Zapple yep. label, which was the sort of um, avant-garde uh, offshoot of of Apple, and you know there were only two records released on that label one was electronic sound and the other was uh, john and yoko's life with the lions but uh, you know there were big plans for zapple and th- th- there's a very good book uh, the zapple diaries mm. um and i would recommend people read that because it gives you a real insight into what they were doing what the sort of ethos and the ideas underlying the label were and and really surprising to me how uh, involved paul was yeah um you you sort of think you know he's off producing mary hopkin and hanging out with donovan learning to play the guitar and uh but actually he is front and center in this sort of avant-garde aspect a lot of which then was just shut down whenever klein came on board but electronic sound is basically if we're being honest about it it's george trying out his new Moog Series yeah. 3 synthesizer. Um, well, part and, of it is um, not even him, isn't it? Like there's a, a, it's, it's Bernie yeah. Krause is, is, is a part of this. Exactly. I was going to say this is his first uh, brush with plagiarism, but his first <laughs> br- brush with plagiarism was uh, It's All Too Much, where oh, yeah. he, he sings uh, with your with long, your long blonde, blonde hair and your yeah. eyes are blue, and that, that, which is a line from the song Sorrow. And I think that was settled with uh, some money out of court. But but yeah, um, Kreis says, you know, he was demonstrating uh, the instrument uh, to Harrison and, and he didn't really realize it was being recorded. Mm. And then the next thing, suddenly it appears on, on an album and uh, George did offer to sort of give him a credit. And I think the sleeve does credit him, except 
Christ then said, I want nothing to do with this. And George <laughs> just took silver paint and painted his name out. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's very strange. There's a, a very good book uh, by Michael Lang uh, by George's music. And he describes this as, and I'm going to quote here, one of the worst records of all time. Low praise indeed. Low praise indeed. <laughs> all, all, all music gives it a four-star review. So, you know, well, you pay uh, your money and you take your... As I, said, as I said, I haven't I haven't listened to it a second time. Uh, Bernie Krause is, um, you know, the uh, My Beloved Monkeys were one of the first bands to get a Moog synthesizer on record in yep. uh, 1967. So Bernie Krause is involved with the Monkeys song Star Collector, which if anybody out yes. there is unfamiliar yes. with, is well worth uh, um, digging out because the, the synthesizer on that is uh, insane. And also um, Daily Nightly by Nesmith. Um, so that's uh, what I find interesting and or funny or amusing about these records is how they don't sell. Uh, and I know they're experimental and they're yeah. not supposed to sell. But you must think that if you owned a record shop in 68, 69, and you had a record with George Harrison's name on the front of it, that it would at least get a bit better than whatever it was, 196 or whatever it got to in the in the US charts. These things just stay glued to the shelves. It, it's it's funny because you know you think four years earlier yeah. uh, in 1964 there was a scramble to put out anything that had the Beatles yeah like interview discs and all sorts of crazy stuff was hitting yeah. the charts yeah uh, you know these different configurations particularly in America um, but here uh, it, I, I, it's hard to you know there's clearly two versions Life with the Lions electronic sound the Zapple label. Mm. This is this is a mark. This is a clear distinction. That this is not the Beatles. This is not Hey Jude. This is not the White Album. Um, yeah, it's but it's interesting how um, the general public knew that. It's interesting that they, the general public knew that they just could sense that this is not a George Harrison album, and we're not going to buy it. Yeah, you know. Um, I mean. It, the, 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 the idea, you know, you wonder if George had had if there had been some vocal track, if George had maybe written yeah. lyrics and and had to, that might have been different. But this is this is this is what it is. It's a soundtrack. Yeah, like a kind um, of a Bowie, but of suburbia type thing where there's like a yes. single to hook hook yeah. everyone in, and then you know, then... yes, if if he'd released a, a solo single, but um, but it, it's clearly it's seen as something else. Yeah. You know, um, it's something else. And the Zapple label, I think, was was quite clearly the marker of something that's a little bit out there. Um, she said a very good BBC radio documentary on the Zapple label, which you can get on YouTube, and we could put yeah. up a link, we'll put up a link to for that. that. So this brings us up to the start of, well, of 1969. Um, Electronic Sounds comes out in the middle of 69. But if you're thinking about All Things Must Pass, the album comes out in December 1970, and there's a thread that kind of goes back to January 1969 that puts the album together. And so January 1969 is famously the month of the Get Back slash Let It Be sessions. Um, they're in Twickenham, they're in Apple, they're on the roof, and they're uh, at each other's throats. Um, but George's 1969 starts with these sessions and starts with him walking out of the Beatles one day. Yes, and, and he he, yeah. he 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 you can he can be heard sort of mulling over uh, the possibility of a solo album. So this is this is really as far as I'm aware, it's during these sessions that he first starts floating the idea of of some kind of solo album, and we get start to get references uh, in in the conversations to 
the stockpile of songs that he has that things have been building up and there's there are discussions about you know john in particular sort of encouraging well why don't you you know put a solo album out you know yoko and i are doing that you could do that you could you could you could uh get these songs out that way and at what point something i've never been able to figure out and maybe we can't answer this question but it seems there's a, a, a tipping point where George's stockpile of songs goes from being kind of a, an accidental collection, maybe, of overflow songs into being a yeah. con- conscientious collection of keeping songs to himself. Yes. And I, because in January 1969, during Let Back Get It Be, he is bringing in All Things Must Pass to try and get the Beatles to perform it. Yeah. And. It, you know, there's great bootlegs out there of it, and it's lovely to hear the Beatle harmonies on some of these rough takes of it, but he doesn't, he's not pushing it. He's not really pushing any song during Let Back Get It Be particularly. No, I mean, he he is coming into those sessions off the back of sort of falling in love with the band. yeah. And <laughs> your your favorite band? I, 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 the, I'm, I'm the not ba- the band ruined everything. I, I think the band ruined everything. I know I'm not denying the talent of the band, uh, but I certainly think that their you know their worthiness sometimes rankles with me. All that all that authenticity, all that brown, yeah, all that brown. <laughs> everything went brown. Yeah, but George so, yeah, is enamored by the band at this point. He is incredibly, you know, he and Clapton are famously uh, sort of enamored. I mean, George, I think, uh, describes them as the best band in the universe. And there's obviously an element of putting his own band and John and Paul down uh, uh, by saying that. But so he's coming in and clearly wants to have that collaborative approach that he has seen with the band and with Dylan. um, And he's just not getting it. And he's bringing in absolutely top tier songs i mean i don't think anybody would say could argue that all things must pass is anything other than a top tier song and he's getting no traction whatsoever yeah um you know john in particular you can hear him in these sessions complaining about all of the chords (laughs) you know these are these are too tricky these are sort of difficult chords and john doesn't like that um so there does come a point after george has walked out where when one of the conditions of him coming back is to say none of my songs will be performed in the live show, wherever that may be. And that's specific. He, he did specifically he, say he that? Would, yeah, he withdraws his songs from consideration for the live show. Right. So that that's the first thing. And the second thing, if you look at the songs, uh, the, his songs that end up, on the Let It Be album. I mean, particularly the one I think of is For You Blue. Mm. That's a very simple yeah. little, 12 little bar kind blues, of... 12-bar blues, Elmer James got nothing blues. on this one, baby. All that stuff. And you do get a sense, I think, at this point, that he is holding back. He's just accepting of the fact that these songs are, are not going to be recorded by the Beatles. They're not going to be accepted for this particular project. Certainly... He comes up with For You Blue. And there is a sense, I, you get a sense, I think, that he's dumbing down for mm. John. Mm. You know, we know that John around that time uh, was, the, you know, the, the heroin baps had, had come into play. <laughs> um, mm. and, and, and there's a sense, I think, 
you know, you can, why, did, why, given that George ultimately is, goes on to be known for his slide guitar, but why, why is uh, John playing, that. playing that guitar? And I, you, you do have a sense of he throws John the solo and the cigarette lighter that John uses to play. You know, it's a kind of, let's keep John interested. Um, We'll give him a little 12-bar blues. I have one. We can do that and let him play the solo, and that will keep him kind of on board and keep him engaged. But you do get a sense, I think, that this is the point at which he's kind of acknowledging uh, these songs are not for the Beatles. It's, it's, It's very sad, in a way. It's sad that... George is somebody who um, went on to have great working relationships with other musicians, but could not find a working relationship within his own band. But not only that, I think he, you know, in contrast to Ringo, I don't think he was a fan of the Beatles at that point. And I, you know, he kind of starts 69 by leaving the Beatles and he sort of, you know, floats above certainly some of that let it be get back activity. He's very much present at best yeah Um, it's 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 this idea you know you look at the rooftop concert and everyone says this they're having a ball they're having Mm. a great time you 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 look at that recording of for you blue and they all seem to be getting along great and they can lose themselves in the moment yes uh i think uh and george can do that but i think there's a point in they, early they can't six- think about it or they can't talk about it. No. If you stop to think about it or you stop to discuss it, if you stop, if you interrupt the kind of the moment of creation is fine. Yeah. But I think this is the point in early 69 where George realizes that his ability to have a genuine sort of creative input yeah. and to take the band in a particular direction, he wants the Beatles to move in the direction of the band. He And you can see... The frustrating thing is that that's arguably also what Paul seems to want at that stage. It's mm. a kind of stripping back. You, you know, we're a great little band. Let's get out on the road. Um, George frustratingly wants that too, but they just can't find a way to make it work. Um, and But George, I think, does have that passive-aggressive thing. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't push his songs forward. It's that, you know, I'll play what you want me to play or I'll not play at all. Um, and that's his response. And they just seem unable to, to, as you say, to be able to find a way of working. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's unfair to say George isn't a fan, but I certainly think in 69, he starts to realize that the Beatles are not the most important thing. No. That there are other avenues to, to, to go through. Um, so you look at George's 69 and he's, he's, you know, Two years earlier, in 67, he's not really playing guitar at all. But then in 69, he's doing an awful lot of things. He's doing, he's producing, he's recording with yep. other people outside the Beatles. He's writing with other people outside the Beatles. He's doing albums, he's doing singles. Um, so let, let's let's think about some of those things. He's, he's, he's producing lots of stuff for the Apple label, some stuff that's really good and has stood the test of time. Absolutely. I would say that it's the... Apple output that George is involved in most directly that that does stand the the test of time. Yeah, it's got heart and soul. Um, It's great stuff. Yeah, I mean, I make an exception. The best release on Apple that wasn't by the Beatles was uh, Mary Hopkins' Earth Song. Uh, That is good too. That is a great song, uh, but a great album. But. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, uh, when John is tiring of the Beatles, he goes off and starts making records with Yoko. Mm. The interesting thing to me is that at this stage, George is not thinking of a solo album. So he is working with Jackie Lomax, um, which is a fantastic uh, uh, album. He gets the uh, Krishna Temple into the charts, into the singles <laughs> charts. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he produces albums for Billy Preston, uh, for Doris Troy, and that sort of work with them, uh, that sort of soul and gospel will just come back and pay dividends when, when we get into his work on all things must pass and living yeah, it's, in the it's more stuff that he's putting world. into the mental Rolodex and the actual Rolodex uh, of feelings. Absolute, and, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what, what he's also doing is honing his production skills. Yeah. So he's learning how to work the studio. Um, he does a very good production job on some on songs by Badfinger. He works with Derek and Lon Van Eaton. There's a couple of tracks on their album Brother that sound like they've just dropped off uh, All Things Must Pass. And he's also writing songs with other people. So he's co-writing with Billy Preston. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he co-writes Badge with Eric Clapton. So these are the first co-writes significant co-writes outside the Beatles. Let's talk about Badge for a second, because that is an interesting little song. Yeah. Uh, so Badge by Cream, which uh, was recorded actually at the end of 68, uh, 21st November 68, and it's a co-write between Clapton and Harrison. Yeah. And uh, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's a very 70s type of song. It is. It's very. I think it's very forward looking. Mm. I mean, it has. It. 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 it uh, as you say, it was recorded in November '68. The song that sort of precedes it for me is "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." Okay. It has a similar sort of sound in terms of the way the guitars are recorded, and also those sort of arpeggiated passages mm. in the, in the middle are are really looking forward to Abbey Road. Yes. Um, uh, and that guitar style. And for years, I assumed that was what George brought to the table. Um, but that's actually Clapton playing that part. Yeah. Um, 
George is playing rhythm guitar, and I knew he was credited under a pseudonym as rhythm guitar, but I just assumed because of the Abbey Road style of of of, of playing that uh, that that was him. But it is uh, that that chap Michael Lang that I I referred to. He describes it as a new type of rock pop song. Yeah, um, and particularly coming from someone that up to this point Clapton had been regarded himself very much as a sort of blues purist. Yeah, it's an in, it's an interesting. Uh, uh, development, and you can see also it prefigures Blind Faith and that style and that the, the sound of that album. Yeah, and it does. It does. Pref- uh, yeah, it, it has a couple of little threads in it, as you say, the Abbey Road thread, and um, you know that that little descending ar- arpeggio um, is 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 reflected back in George. Kind of carries it over into something, yeah. and um, are also sorry into Here Comes the Sun. But uh, as I said, it does have this kind of seventies sound, and it, it you know it's that kind of early seventies kind of classic rock radio, yeah. um, AM radio rock. You kind of hear it through that, and as you say, it kind of ta- it's it's away from Clapton's usual uh, blues um, abilities. Um, so it's it's an interesting little song, and you can kind of see it's like a little crack uh, where you can kind of see what's coming down the tracks a little bit. Yeah, and uh, it's a Ringo co-write as well but he doesn't get a credit George says Ringo Ringo came in drunk and gave us the, <laughs> and gave us the line about the swans living in the park oh, so there you go didn't so, know that um, there you go so he's working with lots of people he's also working outside of the Beatles and outside of Apple with uh, with also with Jack Bruce and Leon Russell and a Birmingham supergroup which uh, do you want to tell us the name of that Birmingham yeah, supergroup this, 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 uh, the Birmingham supergroup is called Balls Right. And who is in Balls? This is your kind of group. I know. <laughs> it's got, uh, it has uh, Denny Lane. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rick Gretsch, who, Gretsch, who was in uh, Blind Faith, but also Trevor Burton of The Move. Ah, oh, The Move. What a band. The band that Pink Floyd could have been. Um, but they didn't really go anywhere. This was, this was kind of later really... in 69 uh... that they were... Yeah, they were they, doing it didn't, this, re- but... didn't really go go anywhere. But George sort of was dropping in on their rehearsals and jamming with them, and it never really. I think there's maybe a single out there. I'm sure someone will be able to tell us what that sing- single is or have a copy of it. But um, it didn't. It's the it's the group that could have been. Yeah, yeah, but it's funny that uh, Denny Lane was in George's orbit before Wings. I wonder. Did, yes, um, yes. On the big open topped Wings over Europe bus, did Denny did tell it? Paul about his time hanging out with George? Maybe. Jamming with George. Jamming with George. Um, but probably maybe the most formative thing that George did was towards the end of 68, which was when he joined the, the tour of Delaney and Bonnie. And yes. This is interesting because, you know, I, I always find it funny that Paul in the Get Back, Let It Be thing, is like, we're a great little band. Let's get in a bus. Let's turn up and do gigs. Yeah. And everyone says, Paul, you no. shut your mouth. And no. then... John gets on a plane and goes to Toronto and plays some stuff ad hoc. And George does a version of it with Delaney and Bonnie. So, so it's like, yeah. yeah, Paul, we want to do it, just not with it's, you. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is really hard to sort of imagine what Paul must have felt when he kind of opened the paper and saw, oh, Oh, right. Okay. Uh, George, George is touring England with, uh, with Delaney and Bonnie and, and John is, is flying to, oh, Eric's there. All right. Okay. It's very odd to think what he must have, uh, uh, his reaction to that was. 
So uh, let's talk about Delaney and Bunny. I have to admit, it's Delaney and Bunny is not really my kind of bag. You know, Delaney, kind of... Delaney and Bonnie are one of those bands that it's they're like Marmite. Mm. You know, they they divide uh, they divide the nation. I think I I do like Delaney and Bonnie, and they are a hugely influential mm. uh, band for for a band that really didn't have a lot of success themselves. You know, they, yeah. they sort of influenced, the huge influence on, on Clapton, uh, on Harrison, Leon Russell, that whole sort of uh, early 70s Southern gospel rock style of, of, uh, of, of music all sort of flows out of this. Yeah, and uh, George loved them so much he wanted to get them onto Apple at one point. I think they were signed to Elektra, is that right? Yes, they'd had a couple of uh, a couple of albums, and they recorded um, uh, their second album, I think, called "Accept No Substitute," uh, and that had Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, Jim Keltner. George heard this and said, "Yep, we're gonna we're gonna put this out, sign you to Apple." Um, unfortunately, they were already signed to Electra, which either he didn't know or they neglected. Uh, my guess would be that Delaney Brown didn't bother mentioning that. Um, but there are. Pressings. It's a very rare uh, Apple album, and there are pressings of that album. The catalog number was assigned, and oh. um, I was I was once offered a copy of this in a record shop. Uh, right, and you did or didn't purchase? I did not buy it. It was several years ago, and it was seven hundred and fifty pounds, which oh was God. way outside my budget. Um, but if if, if oh, anybody, but you regret it now, though, Stephen. I do regret it now. I mean, if if anybody has a spare copy, um, <laughs> if, if they'd like to let me know, or better yet, just put it in the post to the Nothing nice. Real headquarters. That would be most appreciated. If I'm sure the has. Germans have a word for, you know, that thought you have of a record you put back in the racks many years ago that you should have yeah. bought. But uh, I, anyway. I, have, I, I experience that often. <laughs> um, so the Delaney and Bonnie tour, he's not really on tour with them for a long period of time, but again, he's collecting experiences and people that will feed into All Things Must Pass. So yeah. Jim Gordon, Bobby Whitlock, and, and Jim Kelton is going to be a lifelong friend who ends up being obviously drummer for the Wilburys as well as everybody else. Yeah. Um, so it's really only in December 69 that Harrison just joins the tour spontaneously. Uh, more, more or less, he, he first of December, he is at the Albert Hall uh, to see the band, goes backstage. Uh, according to, to Delaney, he said, uh, can I be in the band? And he said, yeah, of course, uh, we'll pick you up tomorrow morning. And literally the next day, the tour bus rocks up outside George's house, uh, you know, Patty packs him some sandwiches <laughs> and uh, off, off he goes. And, and suddenly he's, he's touring and as a rhythm uh, guitar player. And um, then one of the most formative things here is he is asked to play a slide part. Right. And so suddenly he says, okay, and he learns how to play slide guitar. So he's on stage playing slide guitar really for the first time and developing his own style of yeah. doing that. You know, he's, he's not a Ry Cooder uh, uh, style slide player, um, but this is where he, he sort of picks up that instrument. Yeah, and it's, you know, the slide guitar for George is really a kind of a solo George type sound. And it, yeah. it, it, it appears on All Things Must Pass and it kind of starts at this point right at the end of the, the 60s on tour. 
um, with Delaney and Bonnie. And the other thing that kind of starts to arise on this tour, and we'll talk about it in the next part, but this is where My Sweet Lord starts to germinate as well on this tour. Yes, yes, because he's he's hanging out with uh, with this band, which is a very sort of loose conglomeration of people that come from that gospel style and uh my sweet lord is really written that this starts to germinate as part of this where he george is is sort of vamping away on the chords um uh backstage at a press call after a press conference and uh everyone's kind of throwing ideas into the mix and it is that kind of gospel feel comes out of delaney and bonnie um you know they they, they spawned the joe cocker Mad Dogs and Englishman review Leon Russell. It's 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 pure gospel uh, uh, are, are in their roots. Yeah, uh, so it's a short tour. As part of it, he takes to the stage of uh, the Liverpool Empire, which he's says yes. he brings back a lot of memories, and that must have been a bit of a an interesting way to close out the decade for him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think. You know, did people go along thinking it's George Harrison? We're going to get get to see George Harrison. Well, was um, it really known? I mean, if you think about how news traveled in those days, by the time it hit the NME or Melody Maker, the tour would have been wrapped been up, over. really. Yeah. yeah. You, you think these days it would be on Twitter and sold out in seconds. But, exactly. Uh, if you think about how uh, how quickly we knew about James Corden and, and <laughs> Carpool Karaoke. I was following that on Twitter in real time. Um, so we at the end of that tour, uh, Delaney and Bonnie and John and Yoko and the Plastic Onu Supergroup play this kind of UNICEF gig uh, on yes. December 15th, 1969. The, um, the, the Plastic Ono Supergroup. Yeah, so it's a bit, a bit of an overlap uh, of what's been going on. And if people are, you know... Um, uh, paying attention at home. You know, the other things that are kind of happening at the end of 69 is that, uh, you know, Paul has been up in Scotland, as we mentioned on the McCartney episode, you know, lying low. Uh, you know, the, the, the band uh, are, are trying to figure out what to do in the wake of Lennon saying that it's over. But yep. certainly, you know, the, the, the September meeting where Lennon says, I'm out of it, or I'm out of here, or both, <laughs> is... Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, even that doesn't spur George on to say, oh, I better, like Paul gets the message and starts putting solo work together in his head, but George is still not recording solo stuff. No, this is the the, the phrase you, you, you coined, you know, Schrodinger's Beatles. Yeah. They are together, but not together. And, and uh, you know, my reading of this is that even after Lennon made that announcement, um, he'd made this type of announcement before, you know, he, mm. he, he, called meetings for one purpose or another and you just sort of let John say these things and then you move on and and this is the point at which um, when we talked about in the McCartney episode that they almost come to an end I think by accident mm. you know there's not much happening in that that uh, period um, and it's really only in, in sort of after instant karma that, that kind of February March that it starts to dawn, I think, even on Paul, that this is this is it, and he he kicks his solo album into gear. But even then, George is not committing, yeah, to 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 a solo project in so, the sense of in the sense of a a solo, you know, a, a fully blown solo album. 
So the timeline, as we've talked about before, is that right at the start of January 1970, Paul, George and Ringo spent two days in Abbey Road. They record I Me Mine, the last new Beatles song, and obviously a George written song. And it had to be recorded because he's seen kind of busking it in the Let It Be movie. And they said, we want a recording for the film. So they made that happen. Um, and then at the end of January uh, 1970, John records uh, Instant Karma and puts that out. Um, and then there's this tumultuous uh, period of time between February and May 1970 where Paul is finishing his album. Um, there's a lot of aggravation in Apple as to how and when that's going to come out, trying to get uh, Let It Be over the finish line. Um, you know, Ringo is involved in some of the orchestral overdubs for Let It Be. And George is obviously aware that it's happening and aware that it's coming out because there's the the John George Ringo axis in Apple and Paul is kind of withdrawn from Apple. Yeah. And in that early 1970 period, um, Paul, or sorry, sorry, pardon me, George, uh, he's still working with Billy Preston. He's, he's doing his uh, album, isn't that right? Yes. I mean, he's still, he is still very actively involved with Apple. And this is the irony, Paul, and again, in a kind of slightly passive aggressive way that might be more characteristic, perhaps of George has just withdrawn. Yeah. Klein, Klein is in and uh, sort of, you know, clearing out what he perceives to be dead wood. But George is still in there, still involved producing uh, and working with, with Billy Preston on Encouraging Words, which is his second uh, solo album. So you get to, it's really only when we get to May 1970 that George puts his foot forward and takes all these cumulative experiences from the previous 18 months and starts to take definitive steps for making a solo album. So McCartney's album's been out in April. Let it be. The movie and album's about to come out in May 1970. And it starts really at the 1st of May 1970, where George has a session with his his new best friend, really. His his new best friend, Bob Dylan. Yeah. Is he, I forget which Wilbury he was. Otis? Was he Otis Wilbury? Lucky. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> because um, because I remember at, at Bob Fest, if you remember the Bob Fest yeah. uh, concert, George comes out and said, you know, people... Some some may call him Bobby, some may call him Zimmy. I call him Lucky, and I thought initially I wasn't making the Wilbury connection, and I thought it's like I just regard him as being lucky to have the career he's had. <laughs> he's I, thought, I, thought it, I thought it was a put down, but uh, it was Lucky Wilbury. Um, um, so yeah, the Wilbury brothers, uh, George Wilbury and brothers. Bob, um, record a, a session together on the first of May, nineteen seventy, and it's it's been bootlegged. And it's, it's laid back. It's that's very generous. Uh, it's <laughs> very generous. At at the time, this this did make the papers. Yeah. Um, it made the music press and Rolling Stone later in the month. They reported on this, and it was it was you know a Beatle collaborating with uh, with Dylan, and um, it, it 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 was a slightly shocking, scandalous thing, and. Um, the uh, the Rolling Stone, I, I'm going to read this, on the 28th of May, said Bob Dylan snuck into Columbia's Studio B in New York on May Day and recorded for 12 hours with George Harrison, lead guitarist for a reportedly defunct British rock and roll group. <laughs> so they were, they were, you know, the Beatles are over and George is in the studio working with Dylan. And uh, they also went on to report that about five of the numbers are reportedly of high enough quality to merit inclusion on a future Bob Dylan album. So immediately the rumor starts that, that Harrison and Dylan are collaborating on an album. And it was obviously nothing of the sort. As you say, it was 
very casual, sort of charming, uh, you know, they're just running through a lot of old 50s songs, some old Dylan songs, yeah. and just, just having a good time. Well, George had hung out with Dylan, uh, wasn't it, the previous August 69 at the Isle of Wight? Yes, yes. Uh, so, so we had that late 68 and then the Isle of Wight and this. And George is very much cementing this friendship. You know, they're just, uh, uh, someone said this session sounds as if it's just it's just two friends hanging out and having fun. But George, and he's been very explicit about this, George is a massive fan of Dylan. It's not just a question of respect. He kind of thinks Dylan is an alpha and omega Again, yes. in a way that some people might think John and Paul are an alpha and omega yeah. of songwriting, but he certainly affords Dylan, and I'm not denying they weren't friends, but he certainly affords him a respect for his talent that I never really heard him say about John and Paul. No, absolutely, absolutely, and I mean he will, uh, you know, all the way throughout his his entire life, he will quote Dylan yes. lyrics yes. in 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 interviews and conversations the way other people quote poetry or or snippets of the Bible you know he is throwing <laughs> he is throwing out Dylan quotes and working them in and I I, I think it's that admiration for Dylan's uh Dil, Dylan's talent particularly lyrics although I mean there is an interview where someone I remember saying someone once said to him you know what was it like working with Bob Dylan was it sort of slightly you know, were you slightly overawed? And yeah. he said, well, maybe he was slightly overawed. <laughs> well, you know, so, maybe. you know, I think, I think that the, the foundation of their relationship is, I think that they treated each other like equals, yeah. you know, and it's that idea that, you know, if you, if you live with someone, if you grow up with someone in the way that George grew up with, with John, uh, grew up with Paul, had those formative experiences. You know their flaws. You know yes. their the bad side of their their character, and they are just human beings. And and it's that familiarity breeds contempt. Whereas with Dylan, he's dealing with a, a sort of a, a talent, an equal, and someone that affords him the sort of artistic respect and credibility that he doesn't get within the band and I think within the Beatles and I think that's the key to, to the relationship. I don't think this uh, Bob and George tape is going to make the Dylan bootleg series anytime soon. It's uh, not no. that kind of recording. They, they even, uh, there's, a, there's a, a moment where isn't it Bob starts singing yesterday. That's very funny. Yeah, which is kind uh, of amusing. Because- it, he kind of crooks his way through yesterday, and then at the end, George says, uh, "Stick some cellos on that, and you'd get to have a hit." <laughs> you know. So, um, but but they do. So there's a song working on a guru mm-hmm. uh, that they work on. So they're they're sort of jamming around that, and that's a kind of a co-write. Uh, so this is this is this is where. You know, we get a co-write on on uh, I'd have you anytime on All Things Must Pass. So they're yeah. they're kind of the key point here is they're working together. Yes. Um, you know, and and if you consider the, it's worth hearing this tip. Um, it's a very kind of relaxed atmosphere in a way that just does not exist in in Twickenham in '69. And then the next kind of significant thing that he does in May 1970 and the next step on to making All Things Must Pass, the solo album, is he basically records everything, sort of a he, he, a set of demos where he sits down with Phil Spector yeah. and 
goes through an endless selection of songs in a sort of one man Easter demos type yeah. situation to say, well, here's the here's what I've got on my mountain. And it's a tape where, you know, it, it does circulate in bootleg circles. It's in good quality. And a bunch of these turn up on early takes volume one. Yes. I mean, this is this is a fantastic bootleg and it's well worth uh, seeking out. This is this is. As you say, this is like the Isha demos. This is this is uh, something that really uh, I would love to have the Harrison estate um, polish up and, and put out. So George has sort of been instrumental in in had been instrumental in getting Spectre involved with uh, sort of instant karma. So he's he's aware of Phil Spectre and he has decided he's going to get Phil Spectre to produce his his or co-produce his solo album now that he's committed to it. And this tape, as you say, it's literally George auditioning songs for Spectre saying, well, this is this, this is a song I wrote. Uh, this is the newest one, uh, Beware of Darkness. Yeah, that's a lovely um, introduction. And then he just um, starts singing Beware of Darkness, Beware of Darkness. With, with, yeah. with some words missing and all the rest, but it's still yeah, there. It's um, really good. And, uh, you know, at one point he's saying Beware of Abco, mm. which is the Alan Klein company. So it's interesting that, that he's, he's singing that. Uh, I'm guessing at that point it's a kind of slightly ironic reference to to Paul having fallen out with Klein, but this this is uh, this is an, an excellent tape. Um, and as you say, there are six songs from uh, All Things Must Pass in, in in it turn up on on Early Takes Volume One, and they give you a sense of what this rehearsal tape is like. And uh, this this is what I want on the 50th, or perhaps it's going to be the 51st anniversary <laughs> edition. Um, yeah, uh, of all things must pass. We this might is, talk this about is... a potential box set later on, but certainly yeah. uh, Early Takes Volume 1, which came out, I think, what, 2011, is a uh, an essential your, George record. It's your favourite George record. It's my favourite. Look, I'm, I'm holding it up now, if, if you can see that at home, people. Um, so that's the next step is where he gets all these demos nailed down. He recruits Phil Spector uh, as a producer, and obviously Phil has just been doing uh, the Let It Be overdubs for better yep. or for worse, depending which side of the uh, fence you're on. And it's yep. right at the end of May 1970 that he starts the real recording of the album in Abbey Road. And the recording will go from May to November 1970 before the album appears in December. And That's it. who does he bring together to play? Well, this is, this is the thing. He is, as you said earlier, he's drawing on the people that he has worked with closely in the last couple of years. So the way, the way it's structured, he sort of establishes, if you like, two, two different bands, two sort of core units of musicians. So the first is um, Eric Clapton uh, with Bobby Whitlock, Jim Gordon, and Carl Rattle. And if you, those of you who sort of know the album will realize that's Derek and the Dominoes is, yeah. is, is forming there. So that group had got together at a session for a PP Arnold uh, record. So they're brought on board and that's the first unit. Um, the other band, if you like, is Ringo, Klaus Vorman, Billy Preston, and Gary Brooker from Prokel Harum. Um, so again, you've got Ringo, Klaus, and Billy Preston, which is that that sort of the side men that work with yeah. each of each of the Beatles. That's the kind of little tight little unit um, of session men that will work with uh, George. When you think and of Ringo. Ringo and Klaus, uh, what they did as a rhythm section in just one year in yes. 1970. Yeah, all things must pass. 
plastic on a band for John, plastic on a band for Yoko. Yep. That's a pretty good CV for six it's, months' it's, work. It's it's a hell of a, a an output um, and, and a huge range of uh, of styles. Um, so sometimes these bands will be brought together. These players will be brought together, but these are the the core bands. Plus, you've got Sidemen, you've got uh, Badfinger are there because Phil <laughs> Phil does like to have a, a thousand acoustic a guitars hammering <laughs> away. You've got uh, Jim Price and Bobby Keys uh, on horns. They they uh, work with the Stones. Um, uh, uh, Peter Frampton is supposedly there. Um, and uh, Phil Collins. Phil Collins Poss- is... Possibly, possibly. <laughs> well, the, the Phil Collins tale is quite a, a, a good tale, um, where he was... Uh, I, I think I might have mentioned already, I read Phil Collins's autobiography this year, and it haunts me. But he, <laughs> In a good way? No, in a bad way. I kind of... I, you know, I, 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 re- I read it and I felt... My gosh, has he enjoyed any of it? And what he seemed to do was he seemed to have a fantastic 1960s Phil Collins because he's, yeah. um, you know, he's a he gets a big role in a, as a teenage star in a West End show, and then he decides he wants to become a drummer. And then the tale is he basically through a friend of a friend, why well, he just gets the nod one night to turn up at Abbey Road. Yes, apparently the the connection was uh, some chap called Martin who was uh, Ringo Starr's chauffeur. Right. Okay. Uh, that was the connection, and uh, I, I I bought this book uh, on your recommendation, or at least I thought it was a recommendation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you're still um, waiting to have a read. Yeah. I, okay. I, but I read I read this anecdote. So he, it, it's I have to say that this anecdote is very well written, and the book. Uh, you know, I, I I'll not be asking you to reimburse me the cost <laughs> of the book. Um, but yeah, he says he was he was in the bath. Uh, and and uh, the phone rang and he got out of the bath and it was somebody saying, you know, we, we, some guy's doing a session. Would you like to come down and play percussion? So, um, and it was an Abbey Road. So he he didn't know who it was he was going to see or what session. He just thought, Abbey Road, that's where the Beatles hang out. I might actually get to see a Beatle. And he's ushered into a, a studio and they're in the middle of a photo shoot. Uh, so you've got, you know, George and, uh, I think Eric Clapton had just left, but you've got Ringo and Billy Preston and the whole kind of team are there. And George speaks to him and says, uh, you haven't been here long enough to get in the photograph. Sorry about that. Um, but then, then they, they, they spend the night, uh, and I think it's art of dying is the song that they're working on. Yes, and, uh, and he's given he, congas to play. To sort of he's given congas to play. So he said at one point he's sort of standing beside uh, Ringo's playing the drums and he's standing beside Ringo playing the congas and bombing cigarettes off Billy Preston. And uh, he thinks this is it. I, I'm, this is George suddenly realizes George Harrison's recording his solo album. This is going to be on my CV. Yeah. This is this is my <laughs> kick starting my career. This is going to be great. And um, he said he's he's ushered out of the room and then whenever he comes back in everybody's gone yeah and he said they've obviously all headed off to some party somewhere and he's not been uh, <laughs> invited but still he goes home thinking Ringo's gonna give me a call I'm gonna be George's uh-huh. drummer I'm gonna be thing and uh, the album comes out he or oh, he pre-orders it yeah uh, rushes <laughs> down rushes down to the shops to buy it scans through all the list of people who are listed on the thing and his name isn't there 
I know he doesn't make the final cut. He doesn't make the final cut, and he realizes his the, the track that he played on is is they've obviously taken the song in a different direction. And the, the amusing postscript is that for years Phil wanted to hear some of the session tapes to hear what yeah. his conga playing was like because he yes. wasn't really a conga player at all. He was a drummer, not a percussionist per se. And um, eventually, he gets a communique one day from George, doesn't he? Yeah, so he he sort of says, you know, he's he's met George on a couple of occasions, and on each occasion, he sort of very casually said, uh, oh, "You don't happen to have, you know, uh, I'd be interested." And George is kind of going, "Yeah, you know, I don't remember you being there." And, and this is years later in the eighties. Years. This is yeah. this is in, this is this is in the eighties, and uh, then he hears through a friend that George is working on a remastering of of the uh, album and he's thinking this is this is fantastic he's going to be going through the session and they have a mutual friend in jackie stewart the race car driver who rings him up one day and said i knew you were a drummer i didn't know you played congas (laughs) and he said what do you mean he said oh what you know george is is working on this album and and um you know, he was saying he's got this tape of you. And Phil Collins is suddenly, oh, my God, after all these years. And he's kind of going, ah, would there be any chance, do you think? And so, oh. so eventually, long story short, uh, a tape arrives uh, with from George saying, is this you? We find this. This is the session tape. And he said he was so nervous he didn't listen to it. <laughs> and it, it took him days to listen to it. And then he put it on and it was awful. There's just um, this crazy conga playing all yeah, over it, out of time, out of miserable. time and yeah. just absolutely. And he's thinking, oh, my God, it's not that. And he said, then you can hear on the tape George saying to Phil Spector, uh, can we try it without the congas? <laughs> can we can we do it without the congas? And he said, this just absolutely crushes him, absolutely yeah. crushes him. And then there's a postscript to that because he gets there's another a- phone call. From, from George. George and George says it wasn't you <laughs> it, it was it was Ray Cooper we 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 just put that we just recorded that tape last week I, I had the session and, and I said to Ray just get in there and play some really bad congress <laughs> I, I I have to admit that does fill me with joy just winding Phil Collins up but over the course such, of about 30 years I was gonna say it's like a 30 year uh it's like a thir- yeah yeah <laughs> It's very uh, funny. He, he, I have to say, Phil Collins takes it very well. He does. He's still, I don't he's know. You read that book, he, he feels like he's smiling through the tears a lot of the time, you know? Okay, okay. I'll, take, I'll uh, take my word for it. Um, so I will do. I we're will up do. to May 1970, and this has been the road to recording All Things Must Pass. We have a massive stockpile of songs. We have an amazing selection of musicians assembled. We have Abbey Road, the greatest studio in the world. And they are ready to lay it all down. But I think that's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, Because as we said, this is going to be a gargantuan task, plotting the course of all things must pass, a triple episode, so you will. But it's it's all ready to go, isn't it? How could he fail? How could he fail? It's all good stuff. So, um, so yeah, so we're going to follow this up in two more episodes uh, covering all things must pass um, uh, to celebrate its 50th anniversary. Uh, so we hope you'll join, come back and join us for those then. Uh, we remain available in all the usual places. Uh, we're on Twitter at BeatlesPod. Uh, we have the private Facebook group, uh, which uh, Stephen will let you into. And, um, you know, if you uh, enjoy downloading and listening to the podcast, we appreciate any kind of review that you can leave us in all the usual places. Uh, but for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockroft. And uh, this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Nothing Is Real is powered by ACAST. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.